G'day, I'm Martin Isles, and this is The Truth of It, a weekly newscast on politics and current events from a Christian worldview. And you might ask, why? Well, to cut through the fake news and bring you what it says on the tin, which is The Truth of It. Today is the 13th of December, 2018. And first up, we turn to the breaking news of the day, which is that the government has finally released the Ruddock Review and its response to the 20 recommendations contained therein. Now, I'm mindful that this could get complicated and boring very quickly, so I'm just going to give you the nuts and bolts, my highlights reel of this. Firstly, what are we getting? Well, here's the main things. One, we're getting a Religious Freedom Discrimination Act, or a Religious Discrimination Act, not a Religious Freedom Act, that's important, a Religious Discrimination Act as an election promise. So, we might not be getting it at all, given that the government's survival of the election is no sure thing to say the least, but a promise of a Religious Discrimination Act. Secondly, we're getting a total review of exemptions in anti-discrimination laws. That could be a good thing, although it could be a bad thing if they end up all getting deleted, and this is the deal. It's going to the Australian Law Reform Commission to take consultation and feedback, and again, what will happen to that beyond the May election? Don't know. The third major thing is that we're getting a law that says that charities cannot lose their charitable status merely because they hold to a traditional marriage belief. Now, that's a good thing. That's going to happen. Tick. But more interestingly, I want to look at what we're not getting for a moment. You know, the Ruddock Review, firstly, doesn't contain anything about free speech. You think of the Archbishop Julian Porteous's of the world, for example, or the Campbell Markhams, who, for speech on issues of marriage and Christian conviction, found themselves hauled up to tribunals. Well, that's going to get worse in Tasmania, at least, and there's proposals in other states that could make it worse elsewhere. Um, and there's nothing here for protection of religious speech. Secondly, there's nothing about conscience protection. These are the butchers, the bakers, the candlestick makers, so to speak, the people who are in the services industry who might, for example, be compelled uh, by law to provide their services and participate in an event that they cannot participate in in good conscience. Well, nothing for them. The law is still against them in their many varieties and complexions, not just weddings, but family counselling and, 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 and sexual health and all sorts of things. These tentacles run very wide. Um, Thirdly, there's nothing in there that says that organisations with a Christian ethos that want to express their beliefs, like not-for-profits, for example, and, 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 and act according to their beliefs and be uh, continuous, have their beliefs enforced internally, there's very little in there to protect them in their religious freedom or protection from discrimination. Of course, there's the, the one that says they can't lose their charitable status merely because of their belief about marriage, but what about their belief about gender identity or sexual orientation? Or, or in fact, what if they're denied a lease for a building? Or, or, or what if they want to have a, a code of conduct that they bind their staff to? There's very little in here about that. And finally, and perhaps most significantly, there's no positive right to religious freedom. So this does not say that we should enact in Australian law a right to religious freedom to ensure that everybody can live out their religious beliefs and practices in all areas of life. So the upshot is that this does not solve the religious freedom issue by any stretch of the imagination. It is a small, not unmeaningful, but a small contribution to what is a very big issue. And that small contribution, we've got a little ways to go before we really see any fruit from it. We, we, have, we have work to do in order to make that small contribution 
mean something. And what do I mean by that? Well, let's take the centrepiece. Let's take the Religious Discrimination Act, for example. Well, that act could be modelled, for example, on the Race Discrimination Act and the Disability Discrimination Act and the Age Discrimination Act. What's it going to say? Well, it's going to say that it's unlawful to discriminate against somebody, and it'll define a whole range of areas in which that's relevant. Like, for example, you can't deny them a job, you can't fire them, you can't deny them a professional accreditation. There's a range of things. You can't do all this bad stuff to people simply on the basis of their religious belief and activity. Here's the thing. That doesn't necessarily solve things. Because the legal cases that we've been involved in, and there's heaps of them, they have all been, nearly every single one, with just a few exceptions, they've all been predicated on somebody expressing their beliefs in some way about gender, marriage, family, sexuality that collection of issues. And there's no guarantee that says that that collection of issues will be viewed by a court in a strict legal sense as being protected religious belief or activity. I kid you not. And so if this act is not drafted in such a way that it specifically says that those beliefs, beliefs about marriage, gender, family, sexuality, are protected beliefs, then there's no guarantee of protection on what is the number one lightning rod for controversy and for uh, lawfare and legal persecution against people of faith. And so we need to lobby for that. But secondly, um, in relation to this act, what about Christian organisations? We know that Christian individuals will be protected, but will not-for-profits be protected? What if there is an overtly religious body or Christian organisation and they declined a lease in a building, for example, or uh, an accreditation that is provided to different groups and they're denied that, but it's given to others instead simply because of their faith basis or their religious beliefs? Well, there's not necessarily going to be anything in this Religious Discrimination Act to protect them unless it's drafted in. Uh, and thirdly, what about governments? Will they be bound? Will governments be able to discriminate against, for example, in the discretionary allocation of funding? Will they decide not to give funding to this person or this group, to give it to this person or this group instead? Because, well, their, issue, their beliefs about sexuality are religious and wrong, and so they'll give it to somebody else. Now, that's discrimination at the hands of the government or some other discretionary benefit, and there's many that governments are responsible for. Will governments be bound, not able to discriminate against organisations and persons because of their religious beliefs. Again, it's not clear unless it's drafted in. And how's this for a suggestion? Finally, what about compulsion against one's conscience? You know, religious belief is not like age or disability or, uh, or race. It's not an immutable characteristic. It's belief. It's a different kind of thing. And so if you compel someone against their sincere faith-based conscience and you violate their religious belief and their conscience, is that detriment? Is that discrimination against somebody to do that? I think it should be. I think conscience should be protected under this act, but it won't be unless it's drafted in. And so even the centrepiece that we have, the Religious Discrimination Act, we've got some work to do to make sure that that act is drafted in such a way that it is effective. And so when the government opens its consultation process over the next few months leading up to the election, or probably March, April, it'll terminate, uh, we need to be active. We need to be fully engaged with and fully involved in that process to make sure that our voice is heard and the voice of Religious Australia is not silent on this crucial issue. Second... Number two, we turn to uh, another issue from last week, which is the equality campaign. Uh, that is the yes campaign from the same-sex marriage debate. Uh, and you will remember that that campaign told us a few things. Uh, it told us uh, that it was just about marriage. 
that there was no consequences, that there was nothing else in the, in the can to come later, that we could all just rest easy. And in fact, that was part of their campaign messaging. And we all remember it well because it was the no campaign saying, hey, there are actually consequences from this law. And they were saying, no, 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 no. No, there's not. Well, that very organisation has just rebranded to become Equality Australia. They had over half a million dollars in funds left and they're soliciting more donations in order to, wait for it, continue the fight for equality. New CEO Anna Brown has said the following. She said, we know that discrimination didn't end when we achieved marriage equality. We know there are LGBTI people who aren't safe at work. They're not safe to be out and they're not safe at school. We still suffer public harassment and we know transgender people don't have access to the ID documents they need to be treated with dignity and respect. Gay conversion therapy is still pervasive in many faith communities. Religious discrimination is the number one issue that supporters of equality want us to campaign on. We will be taking a campaign to remove discrimination in schools to the highest levels of government. Now notice the issues that have been raised. The first one is ID documents. We all saw the madness from Tasmania two weeks ago where they removed gender from birth certificates. And Bill Shorten said, no, no, I have no plans. Here we have a national campaign to remove gender from birth certificates, passports, licenses, forms, surveys, applications to degender um, society. And this is going to be national with all the muscle and grunt of the equality campaign. Notice the second issue she raised, this idea of being safe at school. Now, that's a euphemism for the campaign we've just had, where it was untruthfully alleged that gay kids are being expelled from religious schools. They are not. And so what was done in order to close that loophole in the law, which wasn't being used, was put together a proposal that not only closed the loophole, but actually made it impossible for religious bodies, not just schools, but religious bodies to teach their ethos, to teach their beliefs, to teach biblical and Christian ethics without facing the threat of lawsuits. You see, that's where this is all going. It's against religion under the excuse and the guise of other things, some of which aren't even happening. Speaking of which, the third one she mentions is gay conversion therapy. And she says it's pervasive in many faith communities. Well, no, it's not, actually. I mean, you and I, when we hear gay conversion therapy, we think of electric shocks, we think of... um, coercion, we think of abuse, uh, we think of all these horrible practices. Now, those things are not happening in Australia in 2018. And to the extent that they did happen, I mean, it was some crazy fringe things here and there which were reprehensible, but I've never actually met anyone who's had first-hand experience with these things, but I'm happy to trust the testimonials of those who experienced it back in the day, and it should be condemned. But, you know, when you look more closely at these policies and these uh, laws about, you know, gay conversion therapy, you realise that's not what they're talking about. The reason they think that this is pervasive in 2018 in Australia is because they're talking about something else. Um, You know, it really is only pervasive if it is conversion to Christ, which is the church's core business, the church's DNA. See, the gospel says that there is such a thing as sin. The gospel says that there is such a thing as repentance. The gospel says there's such a thing as new life in Christ, and that new life in Christ is a life in which things like homosexual conduct don't feature and must not feature. Now, if that's the kind of conversion therapy that is being referred to here, then that is merely the proclamation of the gospel itself. 
And you know, when you look closely at what these people mean by these words, these Orwellian words, and also what the actual policies say in their detail, you realize that that's the kind of thing they have in mind. Christian pastors, Christian counselors, Christian professionals, uh, people who say things about, you know, make claims of change, uh, these sorts of terminology come through. In fact, the ALP's current policy on this uh, is a policy that says that even if parents want to raise their kids in accordance with their sincerely held beliefs, uh, their, their religious beliefs on, on gender and sexuality, that may make them abusers if they have a child who wants to identify the other way. It's that serious. And it's Orwellian language which must not deceive us. And you know, it's like it's all proven. You look at Anna Brown's last content, last comment. She says, religious discrimination is the number one issue that supporters of equality want us to campaign on. The target, they don't mean discrimination of people who are religious, they mean discrimination by. And the number one target here is religion. The number one target here is the fundamental beliefs and tenets of teaching of the Christian faith. And we need to be aware of that. Because I want to note something else before I leave this item behind. These guys get it. They really do. The campaign resources that they are sitting on, the email addresses, the constituency, the millions of Australians who participated in the equality campaign, they have all of that data. And that group of people is an activated and formidably active constituency who will put T-shirts on and knock on doors, who will pick up telephones at crucial moments and ring MPs and senators, who will do whatever it takes, who will volunteer at events, uh, who will write emails, who will, who will send petitions, who will call Talkback Radio, uh, who will write letters to the editor, who will pen opinion pieces. These are an activated people that do this as part of their bread and butter. It's ingrained into them. They get it. And we don't get it. You know, the Christian constituency still sits back and complains about the world and says, well, groups like ACL can go in and talk to the PM and that'll make it all right. It doesn't make it all right anymore because we are now dealing with politics of pragmatism, not politics of conviction. And if there isn't an activated grassroots constituency that is willing to get on its feet and make an impact, then they won't be listened to. And politicians are concerned first and foremost about whether or not your voice impacts the election outcome. These guys have proved it. They get it. And so as ACL develops more and more into a campaign organisation with our 135,000 supporters across the nation, there's heaps of you out there. If we put out calls to activism, to make phone calls, to get on your feet and volunteer, to be a part of a campaign grassroots movement that's finding its voice that's using its voice, that is, that is twice the size of the party that governs our nation, the Liberal Party, if we could find that voice and make that difference at that grassroots level, it would be incredible. And Equality Australia would meet its match uh, and our voice would be heard. And so when those calls go out, um, I encourage everybody to listen to them because as Christians, we need to get used to the idea that if we want to make positive change, we're going to have to do something. We're going to have to be a part of it. It is time to act. Turn to my third item, which is the story of Jeremy Bates, who is the Australian man who became a woman and is now a man again. And his story has come to light over the last week or so. He underwent a gender transition. So he was always actually a man, but he underwent a gender transition, which is hormone therapy and sex reassignment surgery at the age of 35, following a relationship breakdown and feelings of gender dysphoria. 17 years later, he believes that that was a mistake. At age 52, he now says that he's never been anything other than a man. 
Jeremy says that he never received specialist advice or unbiased counselling at the time. It wasn't until four months ago that he started to question what had happened to him. Transgender support groups and clinics were not interested. They blocked him from online groups and ignored his calls. So he reached out to, for support elsewhere and did his own research. And he now says that there needs to be a rethink about how we handle gender dysphoria cases. And all I can say is, indeed, there does. You know, ACL hosted uh, Walt Heyer, one of the first ever gender reassignment patients from the United States recently. Walt underwent a transition to become a woman in the late 50s, and later on he regretted it and transitioned back to the extent that someone can. It's not fully reversible, this process, which is the shocking thing about it. And Walt since has run a transgender regret counselling ministry, and he's actually met with and counselled thousands of people who have undergone gender transition and then have regretted it and desired to come back. And you know his experience, he says, is that he sits down with them and he says to them, what went wrong? What led to this pathway, this feeling that made you do these things? And he says 50% will tell him child sexual abuse. He says most of the rest have a comorbidity of some kind, psychosis, autism, etc. The point being, Walt says, that there are people out there who experience things like gender dysphoria and need help. And rather than help them in the way that they need to be helped, we are destroying, mutilating their bodies in a way from which they will never fully come back. If you Google transgender regret or YouTube transgender regret, you will get uh, an enormous number of results. Uh, you can look at the story of Carrie, a 21-year-old woman uh, who posted a YouTube video. And she says, I'm a 21-year-old woman with a five o'clock shadow and a broken voice and a scarred chest. All because I couldn't face the reality that my might actually be a woman. She wanted to become a man. And she didn't receive unbiased counselling. And she went down the pathway that is now being promoted in our very schools and in the guidelines from education departments that say if kids feel a certain way, oh goodness, you know, even in the gender conversion therapy policies uh, that are coming out, if kids feel a certain way, can parents tell them to wait because of the suicide rate of post-op transgender people, because of the fact that nearly 90% of them grow grow out of those feelings, no, increasingly socially transition them, put them on puberty blockers, give them hormone therapy, and then put them under sex reassignment surgery. Our own family court has approved a 15-year-old girl for a double mastectomy. And people say to me, why get so concerned about the gender debate? And it's very simple. It is because of the shocking human cost of this issue. And it's the shocking human cost, particularly for our children, who may well need help, and we are denying them that help And instead, we're adding layer upon layer to their trouble by mutilating their bodies forever. Fourthly and finally, I'm going to turn to uh, a good news story, a remarkable story of Bindi Cole Chocker. You know, Bindi Cole was one of nine Aboriginal identifying people who successfully sued Andrew Bolt, the newspaper columnist, in 2011 under Section 18C of the Racial Discrimination Act. Now, Bolt had uh, written saying that race cannot be a choice. You know, you need the genealogical heritage or you need the biology in order to claim to be of a certain race. And he was criticising people who identified as Aboriginal without that heritage or with, you know, one 116th Aboriginal or whatever, tiny minority parts of Aboriginality in them. And he wrote an article criticising that practice. He was sued for offending people on the basis of their racial identity, Section 18C, uh, and uh, that was a successful lawsuit. 
One of the nine complainants was artist Bindi Cole. But you know, artist Bindi Cole has since converted to Christ. And that conversion to Christ has radically changed her worldview, which she describes as being one of a victim and believing that the world was against her and co-opting to herself victim identities, which we're all familiar with. And she says this, she says, by the time the 18C result was handed down, my thinking was already being reformed. I was embracing Christianity wholeheartedly, and that conversion really forced me to confront the way in which I I had created myself as a victim. Christianity doesn't really acknowledge a victim identity. And you start to take responsibility for everything you have ever done. You know, it's a very enlightening quote because identity politics, cultural Marxism, postmodernism, victimhood, whatever you want to call the ideological soup that we are dealing with in our culture, it's fundamentally at odds with Christianity. And that's a point that needs to be made. You know, Christ says, repent. Why? Because the line of evil runs down the centre of the human heart. I'm a sinner, I'm responsible, I'm answerable to God. You know, Christ says, forgive. Why? Well, because I have been forgiven for the unforgivable. I've been forgiven for rebellion against God himself, and I forgive others. And Christ says, change. Why? Because the power of change has been put within me. He's written his law on my heart through the indwelling power of his Holy Spirit to make me the person that I never could be without divine intervention, to be more like Christ on my journey to glory. Um, But Bindi was in a paradigm that said, don't repent, blame others, don't forgive, overthrow the oppressors, don't change, validate yourself. You are the victim. And you know what? Totally at odds with the gospel. And here's a woman who heard the gospel, converted to Christ, and all the fullness of that thinking change has started to flow through her in a most remarkable and a wonderful way. And she actually went on Andrew Bolt's program uh, the other week and, and did an interview with him. Uh, and fruits of change are seen. And even her art has changed. Uh, she recently did a piece uh, where she was washing the feet of a businessman who had a paper bag over his head emblazoned with the word bigot. And there's a great deal of meaning in that and also in her personal story. So what a wonderful news story to finish with. The conversion to Christ of an ardent activist and what that means uh, for engaging with our world. Well, I'm Martin Niles, and that was the truth of it.